This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. This is the Books Podcast with me, Tim Haig, and also with Steve Richards, who's uh, written the, uh, well, for me, one of the books of the season, The Rise of the Outsiders, How Mainstream Politics Lost Its Way. Thank you for hosting us, Steve. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I guess we should start out by uh, saying what we mean by political outsiders. I mean, it's, pre- it's pretty easy to list them. Uh, we're going to all certainly talk about UKIP and, uh, and President Trump and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, maybe Syriza in, in Greece, uh, Front National in, in, in France. What have they got in common? What, what, what makes these the political outsiders? They've got two things in common. Uh, one, in my view, worrying and sinister in its implication. The other, interesting and significant and potentially benevolent. And that's why it makes it quite complicated to weigh up the outsiders. The sinister one is the term, the outsider. If you think about it, what the appeal of the so-called outsider is, is for them to say to the electorate, we have not been contaminated in any way with democratic power. Um, We come from the outside. We've had no relationship between making a pitch and implementing policy. We've never been near any of this. We are a bunch of amateurs. I call it the amateurocracy, actually. So rule by the unqualified. Yeah, rule by the unqualified, which is deeply fashionable. You know, the go phrase in the referendum campaign about we've had enough of experts. It's all part of the same phenomenon. Now, all of that is appalling and that's what they've all got in common. Trump was a business person, never been near politics of any sort. Jeremy Corbyn has been an MP since 1983, never on the front bench before he becomes leader of the Labour Party. And um, Nigel Farage from UKIP, not even a member of the British Parliament. And instead of this being a problem for them, it is a huge advantage. And what, if you step back, the message from that is anyone who gets elected becomes quickly contaminated because they are on the inside. They are part of a bubble. Now, these bubbles don't exist in reality, but the perception that they do is really dangerous. So that's one thing they've got in common, and it is, I think, something that we should all be really alarmed about. The other thing they've got in common is a recognition that huge swathes of voters have been left behind in the new globalised economy, and that the state needs to be, in whatever manifestation, a much more active mediating agency. Now, on the left, that is a far more coherent position, because they believe in the state. On the right, it is wholly incoherent. It's paradoxical, isn't it? Is it is completely uh, so. To, to it, be a, a right-wing uh, statist. But look at Trump. Um, planning or pledging in the US election to spend more on infrastructure than any Democrat candidate in the history of US uh, elections. You make the point that he doesn't say the government's going to do this. He says Trump will do this. Exactly. And that, that's exactly. how he, he, he makes it uh, an attractive proposition to people who would recoil in horror. Or, or to himself. That's how he reconciles the contradiction, that he says he hates politics, he hates big government. Um, but he, Trump, plans to build a wall. He, Trump, 
is going to become a protectionist and put up tariffs. He, Trump, is going to spend money on the US infrastructure. And that's how he does it. For Corbyn, for uh, Cyprus in Greece, for Podemos in Spain, uh, it is much easier uh, for Bernie Sanders. They believe in the state, and therefore they can make more sense of the detachment of many voters. But the appeal of the outsiders is explained, as I say, partly by this very sinister development that anyone in democratic politics is somehow corrupt, poisonous, indifferent to voters. But on the positive side, I think they have revived the idea that the state has to become more active. And, for example, the 2017 UK general election as a campaign was way to the left of the 1997 election campaign, which Labour, a left-wing party supposedly, won by a landslide, because it was all about what can the state do to help the elderly? What can the state do to deal with the demand for health and so on? Um, how do markets work? Um, that was not just the Labour side, although the Labour manifesto was a very robust social democratic document, came from the Tory side as well. And I think that reflects the influence the outsiders have had on this debate about the role of the state and people being left Well, you've behind. even got Mrs May now start, starting to sound statist, starting to say that, you know, the, the, the government can do good things, which, I mean, Mrs Thatcher must be turning in a grave. Yeah, yeah. I think the great tragedy for the Tories in that election is that, May's ideas, I, they probably weren't her ideas, they were the <laughs> ideas of her advisor, Nick Timothy, were actually on the right lines for the Conservatives. If they are going to become a modern centre-right party, they're going to have to address all these issues about how you fund elderly care, how you fund a free health service with a growing elderly population, etc., um, and she, do, she also recognises that some markets aren't working. And that puts her, as people have noted, in Ed Miliband territory. When Theresa May made her opening speech in number 10, when she became Prime Minister, uh, I spoke to Ed Miliband. He said, I think I might vote Conservative, because, you know, it kind of was, <laughs> he was joking, I hasten to add, but it great. kind of, she was speaking some of his language. Now, she'll never get the chance to implement it. It's unclear whether she was just a conduit for others. But it's, again, a reflection on... A change as seismic as the Thatcher-Reagan era, and it's a counter to it. All of this hints, though, at, at, at another uh, another of your, the themes in your book, which is it's not just the relative seductiveness of some fairly unattractive people. It's it's also um, the the outrage and disgust of of the uh, of the voting populations that's that's feeding into this 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 is i mean this, this doesn't happen uh, in the abstract no. i think like me you you, you regard the uh, 2008 uh, financial crash yeah. as one of the fulcrum points of recent history but the rise of the outsider has been coming a lot longer than that it's 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 not a sudden development no although the pace and intensity of the rise really was triggered by the financial crash. The financial crash, I completely agree. I mean, the, the undercurrents of the financial crash were uh, in place long before 2008, but it made sense of the disconnect 
conflict and the concerns of voters and of course deepened the fear of voters that no one was really in control and um, it provided the backdrop to the rise of outsiders on the left of right. Um, the financial crash was a seismic event, one of the most important events since the Second World War and it has redefined politics. It has fueled mistrust amongst voters because they were brought up to believe that this kind of, you know, never-ending uh, eruption of financial markets around the globe would fund schools and the health service, and if some people became multi-billionaires as a result, it didn't matter. Well, of course it did and matter, of course because the, the lot of, uh, at least for, for, for the Western, uh, the rich Western countries, the 20th century did see an improvement in people's yeah. lives. I mean, Thomas Piketty, in his in his wonderful book, you know, Capital in the 20th Century, makes the point that that's an anomaly in world history. That's not yeah. what usually happens, and he puts it down to the world wars, which is a dismal thought. <laughs> but w we did have some decades in which in which the expectations were raised in in ordinary people, at least in the Western democracies, that their lives would get better. Yeah, and then. I mean, the outrage that they're going to feel when that turns out not to be true, after yeah. all. Uh, yeah. It, it's, I remember the governor of the Bank of England at the time, Mervyn King, in the United Kingdom, uh, saying he was amazed there hadn't been riots after the 2008 crash. And in a way, it is interesting that there weren't. But instead, the voters actually rebelled at the ballot box. Um, in, you know, so, so they did rebel, but they rebelled by putting Trump in in the United States. And um, I mean, Italy is very interesting. There you've got this five-star movement where they make a fetish out of not knowing anything about politics. And voters have turned to them in their droves for the same reason, a deep disillusionment, partly justified um, against the so-called mainstream. The mainstream have partly brought it on themselves. But again, and this is why it's quite hard to place this book. I don't say the mainstream are entirely culpable. I try to explain that there's another dangerous gulf here between voters' assumptions that the mainstream have this omnipotent power and therefore the reason voters aren't benefiting from their omnipotence is that the mainstream must be wholly indifferent to them. Now, if you think about it, that is ridiculous. I mean, you can't be, as an elected politician, indifferent to the electorate. But that perception is out there and deepening, and that's dangerous. One of the things I, uh, that I, I find interesting about this whole uh, development, especially the recent developments, and it, it almost sounds trivial when you say it out loud, but it, I think it's actually central to what you're saying, is that, um, is that promises have, have um, stopped meaning anything. Mainstream politicians are frightened of making promises because they're horrified at the thought of having to keep them. Mm. Whereas your outsider is entirely cheerful about making promises. In the first place, he's not gonna have to keep them. And then when he does get into power, well, there used to be a time when, when political parties thought they, they would have yeah. to implement their manifestos. <laughs> Nobody expects that anymore. Yeah, except they half do. Um, you see, if you look at the fate, say, of someone like Clegg, Nick Clegg, you know, he, was doomed the moment student fees trebled. He got into power, pledged to remove them altogether. He was the sacrificial virgin of the whole uh, process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, he was, and, and this issue of trust destroyed him. 
And that happened the summer of uh, 2010. So he'd been in power for about two weeks and his fate was sealed in that time. He was never trusted again. Now, I think you are wrong when the outsiders get into power, which shows the shallow absurdity of the term. Uh, they will be, they will disillusion people. Um, Trump will, in the end, disillusion uh, people when he can't deliver half the things he promised. And it will be a fascinating test to see whether Jeremy Corbyn um, excites if he ever got into power or absolutely disillusions all these young people who are so excited by him. And for sure, it will be more difficult than he anticipates or makes out because the levers aren't available in quite the same way as they were even 20 years ago for governments. It's much harder to raise money through taxes and all the rest. So he's right to try. And I thought it was a very interesting manifesto that they put forward. Um, but it's going to be tough. Can I try another one on you then? Politics is a game of poker. They, uh, the, the sort of bluffing seems again to, uh, you know, gambling the farm uh, on things. Cameron having referendums that he loses. Uh, Mrs May saying, you know, we're going to, no, no deal is better than a bad deal. Now, that's not fooling anybody. The, e, the EU cannot possibly believe that she means that. No. So th this whole business of, of, um, of, of big uh, gambles being being somehow a politically expedient seems seems madness reckless it, well it, it is it you it, you put it brilliantly uh they are gambles that are reckless but are done almost out of cautious expediency cameron felt he had no choice but to hold the referendum so he wasn't being in his view reckless he was responding to a situation in which he thought he would be the beneficiary by playing this card it shows how you can misjudge these things. Um, Theresa May doesn't mean it when she says she's up for no deal. Uh, she's not stupid. She knows it will be a catastrophe. Um, but what I do think is quite healthy is that there is a gamble going on in a different way, which is that the mainstream moved much closer together in the 90s. Clinton and Blair, for example, and that they influenced schroeder in germany and others move much closer to the right because they thought they couldn't win without doing so um now there is a sort of ideological risk taking to use your sort of gambling analogy and it makes in some ways politics healthier so you've got now a recognizable left in the labor party and that applies to spain greece to some extent, Italy. Um, <laughs> Greece, but I, I thought Yanis Varoufakis was one of the great gamblers. Well, I mean, he, he, he went and, and played his hand and, and uh, lost. He, well, he did. I mean, and he's an example of an outsider who had the misfortune to win yeah. and lasted a few months and quickly got out and is now a superstar again because government is very, very difficult. But it is interesting that in Greece, it, it began really in Greece, this whole phenomenon. No one expected... Syriza to win um, and they won easily um, and it was it, it was a great disruptive event um, now we're getting used to them but that was the first example and I remember Ed Miliband's office he was leader of the Labour Party at the time they had no idea how to respond because half his office including Ed Miliband were really excited 
and half his office said we've got to be cautious that they're seen as reckless we've got to disown this thing now now we're getting much use to these disruptive results um and uh brexit trump the 2017 election and if you think about it in the uk i was thinking about this the other day it seems to me of all the countries in uh that have had a disruption since the financial crash i think the uk it's been more seismic than anywhere else if you think about it since the crash in the uk hung parliament in 2010 with the coalition peacetime coalition we never have those um two seismic referendums that are totally disrupted everything brexit and the one in scotland which has led to a rise of nationalism in scotland also outside is that i mean the snp totally. from this point of view are absolutely part of the pattern the rise of the snp it's sort of been dwarfed by these other things is remarkable you know for most of our lifetimes labor ran scotland and dominated it in every sense culturally politically and they were wiped out in 2015 uh, they're coming back again a bit, but they were wiped out by the SNP, this nationalist force, um, as a result of a referendum. Britain doesn't usually hold referendums. It's had two, which has changed everything. Then, in 2015, a Prime Minister won against all expectations, got a majority. Within a year, he was forced out. That's never happened before. A Prime Minister with a majority going after a year uh, of winning an election. And then we had this odd figure, this shy, reticent figure, calling an early election, which he, in effect, lost. I mean, that, to me, uh, if you take Brexit in that mix, has been more stormy than Macron in France, Trump in the United States, the accumulative thing. But they're all part of a pattern. And the backdrop is 2008. I see something else. I think that I want to try on you, which is um, again, I think, is a, a, a recent political development, which is a, a sort of refusal to accept defeat. There was a time when you know whoever won the presidential election in America would be accepted as president. That's no longer true on on either side. Um, mm. um, you, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is is challenged for the leadership within months yeah. of being. I mean, this the, the, the oh, and the Remainers uh, who still think that it might be possible to avoid Brexit. There seems to be a refusal to accept defeat. Is that all part and parcel? Yeah, that's a very good, very good point. This is all so new, and people have been so conditioned to expect a certain kind of politician to rule over us that. Um, it's very difficult for any outcome to be any other outcome to be accepted. If you look again at the United Kingdom, it is extraordinary that the dominant figures of the last 10, 15, 20 years in Britain are not only uh, ideologically uh, in retreat, but are nowhere to be seen. I mean, David Cameron is not in the House of Commons anymore, having won in 2015. His chancellor, supposedly the most mighty figure in the United Kingdom, now edits a newspaper out of the House of Commons. Clegg, who I talked about, a deputy prime minister, many thought would continue to be in another hung parliament, out of the House of Gordon Commons. Gordon Brown, you never hear from. Gordon Brown is near silent, uh, although he's about to publish a memoir. Um, Tony Blair runs a think tank. All the people who, I mean, they were very different in some respects, but had common assumptions and orthodoxies all gone um 
and look at who you know corbyn uh is, is now leader of the labor party um and you've got on the tory side three brexit figures running the three brexit departments i mean the whole thing has been reconfigured so quickly and it's very hard for those who've been starved of the you know fuel of power to accept it i want to go back finally to you mentioned trust and i i, I thought that was a, an interesting theme especially in the, the later part of your of your book because the, the, First, you, you talk in a, a bit about uh, people sort of uh, recovering or regaining trust when they've lost mm. Hillary, uh, you know, suddenly. Ed Balls goes on Come Dancing or whatever it is, Strictly Come Dancing, and, and, and becomes a beloved yeah. national figure. Um, and and uh, you, you actually got a marvellous phrase, the nightmarishly, nightmarishly distorting prism of modern politics, the prism of trust. Mm. Um what, it's clear that there was a loss of trust. Is anybody to blame for that, or is that just one of those historical um, movements? No, I think the media is largely to blame for uh, portraying politicians deeply flawed as uh, a bunch of crooks. I think it's mainly the media. Uh, to be honest, I can say this, politicians can't say it, but I think the voters are partly to blame in their assumption that, you know, because they don't follow it, that they're all a bunch of crooks. Some politicians are to blame for being crooks, but there well, aren't that craving, many. You know. no, it, it's not just being crooks, is it? It's, it's, uh, you, you, you say that the, uh, the, the left um, lost its ideological mojo, and, yeah. uh, and the, <laughs> well, yeah. the, or the centre-left did, and the centre-right um, gained it, gained it. To, yeah. to, 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 to a much extent. Yeah. So uh, uh, politicians as well, surely must. Be. But but that wasn't that wasn't an act of deceit. It was quite open. They all on the centre to left moved to the right. Some of them believed it. Some of them felt they had to do it. But that wasn't an act of deceit. Um, I would go as far as to argue deeply and fashionably. Although uh, the war in Iraq was a catastrophe and it reflected Blair's shallowness that he went along with it and his defensiveness because he was too scared to break with the United States. But to see him, therefore, as a liar is just too simplistic. And I don't think he is a kind of war criminal. It doesn't add up. Why was he so bothered about killing people in Iraq but saving peace in Northern Ireland? I mean, it, it, it's all far more complicated than that. Um, but it is really dangerous. And you're right, the, it is fascinating when politicians leave elected politics, this place which is now so despised, they're adored. Um, and I got to know Ed Balls well in his life as a politician and since, and it's fascinating. So I once spent the day with him in his constituency where he was opening a new centre, for a sure start centre. And he was low, like, yeah, bastard, well, you, you know. And then I uh, uh, interviewed him during the Strictly period, and we walked to the place where the interview was. Walked? You didn't and, waltz? Well, no, exactly. All the people come, Ed, give us a dance. They were adoring him. And as a politician, there he was opening a sure start centre and loathed. And as a peak time celebrity, adored. It happened on the other side with William Hague. I remember hearing a five live phone in, and somebody phoned up and said, uh, Mr. Egg, I think you would make a brilliant leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> and he said, well, I've already done that. You know, so he became a former future leader, you know, because, but only when he left. And those who are in 
this uh, place called democratic politics are loathed, even though we all elect them. So it's self-loathing, partly. And the moment they leave and do these, you know, they all know it's completely pointless, you know, and people like Balls would like to do a serious job again. But he is adored being pointless. On the other hand, the book is very good. As you can tell, I really enjoyed it. I think it's, uh, I think it's important and I think it's got a lot... Uh, to tell us. So, Steve, thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Rise of the Outsiders by Steve Richards is published by Atlantic and it's £18.99. A bargain! That was the Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.